Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. City News. It's 17.30 GMT. This is Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTFM. I am Umaru Sanda Amadou. Tonight, I'm here with... Akosuya Ofenwa Opoku. And coming up over the next 90 minutes. When the pandemic increased the burden on the health system, other services will also suffer. So you may also record other deaths that are not related to COVID because all the energy of health staff have been channeled to COVID management. Health authorities in the Ashanti region worried that the surge in COVID-19 cases will lower priority levels for the ailments uh, recorded among patients in their hospitals. We'll be having a dissection of that particular issue. Also coming up, the coalition of NGOs in water and sanitation that is Coniwas has described as unsatisfactory government free water initiative in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. We'll be finding out what analysis the organization uh, made in that regard. Stay with 97.3 CTFM for more on this and many other stories on Eyewitness News. And in business... Insurance companies in the country that failed to meet the new minimum capital requirements for the industry before December this year risk losing their operating licenses. That's in some 50 minutes with Ellen Dapa. Eyewitness News is live across the country on a number of affiliate stations across the globe we're on citynewsroom.com. It's an interactive show on WhatsApp 0549-986-996. 0549-986-996. You can send me tweets as well. Tweet at umarusanda or at city973. And remember to add the hashtag citynewsroom when you send your views across. This is Eyewitness News Broadcasting from number 11, Dr. Martin Loop in Adabraka in Accra. Let's settle for details of our stories. And the first one is in relation to COVID-19. Akosia. Health authorities in the Ashanti region feared the treatment of various health conditions will be adversely affected if the recent surge in COVID-19 cases continues at the current rate. According to them, COVID-19 treatment requires a lot more attention and resources, and as a result, other ailments may not be given the attention they deserve. Speaking to City News, the Deputy Ashanti Regional Director of Health Services in charge of public health, Dr. Michael Roxenegi, reiterated the need for residents to ensure strict adherence to the safety protocols. The system is containing those who are falling ill now because the numbers are within the bed capacity I mean, of the hospital. But if we don't take a course, one critical case or one severe case will, will require more than two weeks of care. And looking at the way cases are churning out in our region, a time will come that there, there may not be beds to be able to take care of you. Mind you, people who are admitted to the hospital on account of COVID-19, they require some special care. Some have to be on oxygen through and throughout. Some will need CPAP. Some will even have to be intubated. So it's, I mean, it's a highly skilled care that they are needed, that you cannot give at any facility. There are specialized facilities that do this. In Ashanti region here, we have three treatment centers designated, Confanoche, Kumase South, and then Frimpong These are just three. And again, compared to our population, 
if we don't intervene ourselves by observing the protocols, then we risk being planned down by this uh, um, um, pandemic. And, and, and let me add that when the pandemic increased the burden on the health system, other services will also suffer. So you may also record other deaths that are not related to COVID because all the energy of health staff have been channeled to COVID management. So we find out that pregnant women may also die because they will not get that needed care. And even some people may even be afraid to go to the hospital because they feel that if I, mean, if I go there, I may contract COVID. That was the Deputy Ashanti Regional Director of Health Services in charge of public health, Dr. Michael Roxenajay. Meanwhile, in the Bono East region, 77 new COVID-19 cases have been recorded in the last two weeks. According to the Bono East Regional Health Director, Dr. Frederick Adumakobwating, the surge in infections in the past two weeks, characterized as the third wave, raises the total number of COVID-19 cases in the region to 1,533. He further stated that the cases will increase if the COVID-19 safety measures are not observed. Cumulatively, we are having 1,533 cases, 48.5% are females, and the rest are males. Um, if you consider, you break this number down, the first wave, we got 788, and the second wave, we are having 745. But the reason why we are having this interaction is that for the past two weeks, we are gotten a total of 77 cases after kind of a virtual silence. So if you know the total number of deaths are 27. Uh, the first wave, there were 14 deaths and the second wave, there are 13 deaths. So the total case fatality rate that we have recorded in Bruno is, is 1.7. And this is way above the national figure of 0.6. We are still not out of the way, but the good news is that the methods of preventing or stopping transmission are virtually the same. So you could see that the moment we relax in our preventive measures, then the cases tend to rise up. Dr. Frederick Adumakobwating is the Bono East Regional Health Director. Let's speak to the doctors at the national level. Dr. Justice Yangsin is the General Secretary of the Ghana Medical Association, the Association of Doctors practicing in Ghana. Doc, you're welcome to Eyewitness News. Um, we do know that COVID uh, would demand a lot, but how troubling is it dealing with COVID and also considering other ailments? Because the fact that COVID is here does not mean people do not get cholera and fever and all of that. Yes, Omar, uh, you are very right. And uh, I think this is a huge problem that we all need to confront head on. A lot depends on, in quote, authority or the health service generally and government. And uh, the other side depends on us as citizens because it is our actions and inactions that ultimately will help break the current chain of transmission that is ongoing or it is same that will push us to the brink where our health system may be overwhelmed. At this point in time, clearly, the signals are out there. The infection is spreading very fast in our community. Uh, virtually all regions, except our power, have been housed the last couple of days. But as things stand now, the numbers keep increasing. 
the severity of the cases that we see are also going up. And uh, that puts pressure on all of us. Then comes in the bit that we get as what of those who have non-COVID ailments. And uh, because of the way COVID is, it takes a lot of attention. And in the process, sometimes uh, other ailments are relegated to the background. Not because it is deliberate, but it is the nature of the disease. We realize that during the first and second wave, we had to uh, segment our hospitals, try and keep, create a lot of uh, physical distancing, try and cut down the numbers, try and rotate uh, the staff, you know, so that we, we, we could manage. And in the process, we had to resort to uh, other forms of treatment where sometimes we we'll just seek to say a community pharmacist to just give some resources for some medication that ideally the patient may have come to the hospital for one or two to be done before even the prescription. The other bit is that when it comes to intensive care units, uh, we don't have a lot, and that is the truth. Anybody who says otherwise uh, will really want that evidence from that person. But it is this same, you know, limited numbers of ICU beds, looking at the entire population, that we have to still ration and make sure some of it go for COVID and the others for non-COVID cases. So in the process, some of the beds that traditionally have been used by non-COVID patients will have to give way to COVID patients. And sometimes some people who don't have COVID also find it difficult getting access to some of these facilities like ICU. And uh, we need to pull in the process as well. Yes, we try to augment our numbers by adding, you know, uh, some ICU beds in the outbreak of COVID. But on the whole, it is not enough to serve the general population in terms of non-COVID cases and then COVID as well. So it, 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 it's a tall order. It's a huge problem. And if we don't confront it and we get a full-blown wave, most likely this time around our system will be overwhelmed. Okay. Why are we fretting, though? Um, this figure that we are recording, the Ashanti region, isn't the highest ever recorded. We recorded higher figures in the past uh, in terms of COVID-19, didn't we? Yes, but you see, you know, when the surges happen, you start gradually and then you go to your peak and then ultimately you come down. So these are like early days yet. But if you see the infections, if you see the way people are getting infected, then you begin to wonder. Don't forget that there's always an exponential uh, configuration in the spread in terms of the calculation of the numbers. One person infects two, two infect another four, and you know, so when you have a lot of infections going on at the same time, if you don't break the chain of transmission quickly, it gets to a point you have a huge problem on your hand because of the exponential growth way of, you know, the multiplier effect within the bigger base. Then comes the other problem of the nature of this variant. This variant is a very infectious, a highly virulent one that spreads faster from all the, you know, scientific evidence compared to the previous ways. So compared to the alpha and the original COVID-19 that we all started with. 
And these are the things that call for worry. Because if we don't change the way we do things, uh, it's not going to get well. Unfortunately, <laughs> it looks like as of people, we have decided that we are not going to stick to the protocols, which is our best bet as of now. We have sort of decided that we will also enforce things. So, as I speak, I'm past the people around. Nobody is wearing a mask. The only person I have seen is somewhere around his tent. And there are a lot of people around. And nobody seems to care. Nobody is enforcing anything. The other side of it is that we are beginning to see that a lot of the deaths that are happening now involve those who have not had any vaccination at all. Unfortunately, the greater majority of our people have not also had a vaccine. So our only remedy now is a preventive way, and that is a strict adherence and enforcement of the COVID protocols, as we all know. That is our only bet now. As the non-COVID patients are also going to suffer as the COVID cases begin to go up. Do you understand what's happening in the Bono East region? We are seeing that it has recorded 77 new cases there. Now, Ashanti region overwhelmed Bono East recording higher numbers. You're looking at the trend. What do you make of it? Well, uh, uh, the truth is that it is not a good trend. It is not a good trend at all. You know, either to some of the areas in Ghana that had never recorded cases, are now recording cases. Unfortunately, unfortunately, sometimes the level of healthcare in some of the areas are not even like a car. And if we don't take care and we get the numbers as we had in a car, then clearly we are going to have a very tough time because even in a car where generally speaking there are a lot more health facilities, we all know what is happening when in which numbers begin to go up, we, know, we all know what happened. So what is happening out there, especially in the district, is very worrying. Because there are some districts in Ghana that don't even have a district hospital. Hmm. Now, there are people who are thinking that perhaps there should be a localized lockdown as a result. What's your thinking? Well, the truth is that there, there, there is always a place with this whole management approach to lockdown. But the most important thing is what you do when you declare a lockdown, be it a localized or in quote, a regional or whatever one. There are certain scientific principles that will have to go along with lockdown. For example, it gives the health authority the opportunity to actually go into the community, do a lot more testing, do a lot more contact tracing, and also pick up all cases in the community, make sure they get the right treatment, they are isolated and what have you. So if at some point you have to do a localized lockdown, it's possible. I mean, and it's one of the measures. I mean, in recent times, we've done one. If you go to Achimata School, what they happened there was like a local, it was a localized lockdown where now nobody was coming in, nobody was going out. The health authorities went in and made sure that as many as could be tested both teaching and teaching staff and the, the, the students so that we could pick out all those who had the virus at the time and also follow up with the contact tracing. So there's always room for localized lockdown. But the key thing is what you do with those lockdowns.
Thank you so much uh, for your intervention and the information. Thank you, Doctor. That, you are welcome, my brother. That's Dr. Justice Yangsin, General Secretary of the Ghana Medical Association. Do you live in the Ashanti region or the Bono East region? Please let us know uh, what you make of the information coming through. Lots of reactions coming through. We'll be reading them when we come back. Plus, hear from authorities in the Ashanti region how they are intending to manage this situation. Don't worry. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Let your voice be heard on Eyewitness News on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash city97.3, Twitter at twitter.com forward slash city973, and Instagram at instagram.com forward slash city973 with the hashtag Eyewitness News. You're welcome back to Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTF. And we're talking COVID-19. Your views are coming through thick and fast to be reading them uh, for you. But let's go to the Ashanti Regional Capital, Kumasi, and speak to Dr. Roxy Najee. He's Deputy Director of Public Health at the Ghana Health Service in the Ashanti Region Office. Doc, you're welcome to Eyewitness News. Um, your situation is sounding a bit alarming. Um, at what point will you need national intervention? Can we come again on that? Please? I'm saying that the the, the the numbers are rising in your in your in your area. At what point would you need a national intervention, or COVID is being managed nationally? Thank you very much. Um, good evening to your listeners. Um, for national intervention, it's always hard the national team supporting the response. It's an ongoing process. Now, how how troubling is this for you as health officials or managers of the health sector in the region? Yes, uh, it's troubling because um, the way things are going, if the the subscript does not change, uh, we'll be overwhelmed in terms of admission capacity. Uh, because uh, no matter the amount of beds you have, if preventive measures are not enforced, uh, or citizenry do not abide by the protocols. That means that we're going to have an overwhelming admission and the workshop may not be able to match the load of admission that may come at hand. Do we know how many people maximum you can admit in your region for COVID-19? I don't have the exact figures, but in Confanochi, uh, we can take up to 30 when it's massive out at about 25. So, you know, our bed capacity for COVID-19 management will not be For the whole region or just for these two hospitals? You know, we have treatment centers, and currently two treatment centers are functional. That's Kompanochi and then massive out. We have transformed working, which is a backup. And then we are hoping to also open the five, the old hospitals, to serve the same purpose. And now we decentralize the management in terms of um, the markets and moderate cases. We are seen at all levels at the district hospital. So if we want to expand, then we're going to have about 25 hospitals coming on board. That is managing all forms of cases. And we are much concerned about the severe and critical because they need some specialized care in terms of um, intubation, giving oxygen therapy, and all sorts of specialized care that would ensure they survive. And these care are high level, require high level of skilled personnel that can be found mainly at the teaching hospitals and these 
serious things like one cell that I just mentioned. So that is the issue. If we get more critical cases, then we're really going to be in a very terrible situation. So in essence, as a region, um, if you had critical cases up to 70, for instance, that would be too much for you to handle. Exactly. That would be in excess of too much. What options would be available for you then? Do you have to go to neighboring regions? Do you know whether they have the capacity to? Because, of course, Kumasi should be the um, second place after Accra with capacity. Um, do you know what can happen in case you get to that level? In fact, um, I don't want to. Uh, I, I don't want to imagine that because when we get there, um, it's really, really going to be dire. Uh, because the uh, facility or where we can go for this particular care will be with our car region. And we know our car also has its own burden I mean, of the problem. So currently, it is something we can avert if all stakeholders can come on board. I mean, stakeholders, including you, yourself, the citizenry, everybody, because we all need to observe the protocol, and that's a means to break transmission. And once you break transmission, then this uh, uh, critical care or, or critical support may not be needed. I see. Um, should people be scared? Yes, and Yes, because um, when we get to the limits we are, we are discussing, then it's going to be really scary. No, because the limits we are seeing now Compared to the waves that we've had, we are not currently in the third wave, but we are in a straight third wave that we still have some time to act to avert the third wave. But if we do not all agree and then do one thing, that is observing the protocol, then we will get into a third wave. And that is where um, there will be a lot of trouble for all of us. Let's look at support for the hospitals that you have. PPE, critical in this uh, particular issue vaccines and so on um do you have enough in the region or do you have assurance from national that there would be deployment if need be pp and vaccine yes hello please i ask not pp yes pp yes we have enough the issue is not with pp but it's with breast capacity like i like i said we've seen critical cases of covid with quite specialized care and would it be would it be too would it be too much to convert other beds in the hospital for critical care of COVID nineteen? It, uh, it's, it's not just about beds. It's about some specialized equipment like CPAP. You may have to intubate continuous flow of uh, I mean of uh, of oxygen. Certain specialized care that requires specific units to run, and these are not things uh, we can just uh, overnight convert. We are specialized care. And besides that, even the human uh, uh, um, resource, because these are areas that are highly skilled, that sometimes you may have to even give continuous care for 24 hours. And looking at the number of staff that we have trained in this area, we may not be able to match if we should get into a situation that is over and above what we are seeing. In any way, no matter how prepared you are, you can be overwhelmed and you can always say, the picture of India. How prepared were we in But with this difference in the system now, we can be overwhelmed. So what we are preaching is people preventing themselves from getting infected by just observing the protocol and we can contain what we have now. So for now, we are not overwhelmed. As of now, I'm speaking, we are not overwhelmed. But we may be 
moving forward if nothing changes about the action of the people. The people of Ashanti region are there as well Ghanaians. Why is it that we're only recording these cases in Kumasi or in the Ashanti region? Could it be that there's some lifestyle there that is leading to what we are seeing? Yes. Um, the, the most obvious thing that everybody can allude to is the blatant disregard for the people. And did, did but that's not exclusive to that's not exclusive to the region, is it? But I believe similar things are happening in other parts. Yes, in Ashanti region, we've done several street surveys on Mark and then the the general protocol on Mark, which is one of the easier indicators to assess when working in, in the street. Every morning we do this this survey, and the prevalence of mask wearing is always not above thing. and that is there. Very well, thank you. I would wanted I would want you actually now to speak directly to the people of the Ashanti region since you have done a diagnosis of the of the issue. Speak to them directly. What should they do? Anyone listening to us in Kumasi now? Yes, um what we, we will appeal to them because for what we need to do, everybody knows it. In fact, we've been campaigning and using all sort of panels. I just that people are tired or they just don't want to observe the protocol. So we'll plead with them that let's all go back to the basics. What we did some three months ago, that brought the curve down after Christmas. That we were recording 20 cases or, or less every week. So where we are now, when we started um, ignoring the protocol, let's go back to basics, wearing our masks, not um, having those big funerals or big gatherings Washing our hands and ensure general cost uh, ethical and then hygiene. And by this, we believe that we can flatten the curve and go back to the three, uh, um, 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 the low levels that we were before this situation. Thank you so much for your time. That's Dr. Roxina J, uh, Deputy Director in Charge of Public Health at the Ghana Health Service offices in the Ashanti region. Let's bring some of the reactions. You've been sending through on our social media timelines. Uh, Muhammad Bokojo from Assume says, It is because we have a weak leadership in this country. How do we pass a law and refuse to enforce it when people refuse to voluntarily comply? Uh, Jones and Jones from Assume as well says, The population needs education and accurate information on the vaccine before you can talk about its administration. I believe you are not oblivious of all the controversy about the COVID-19 vaccine. Please save the Ghanaian people. Uh, Okay, Alex Kofi Yareni says, I don't see our country Ghana doing enough to fight COVID-19 because public education is no more as well as we, the citizens' personal safety. If Ghana can win the fight against COVID, then we must move from the theoretical stage to uh, the positive, positive stage or positivistic stage and metaphysical stage. Uh, this one from... Um, Prince Henry Kofredo says the government of Akuvado has relaxed on the education of COVID-19 because all the appointees have taken their vaccines, so they don't care about the ordinary citizens. During and after 2020 elections, you hardly hear or see education against COVID-19. You can send your messages to send tweets at Umaru Sanda or at City973. Alternatively, go on WhatsApp and uh, drop your message there, 549 Nine nine six. Akusia, what else do you have for us? 
Um, the intervention of fire officers from the Incaria Fire Station prevented fire from spreading to classrooms and boarding facilities of a private school at Ibuakwa in the Ashanti region. The dawn fire raised about six classrooms of the St. Elizabeth Junior High School, which is being used as a temporary dormitory for the students. The fire is said to have started from an apartment of the school's senior housemaster and spread to the classrooms. Furniture and other teaching and learning materials were also destroyed. In Career District Fire Officer, Divisional Officer Grade 3, James Akowa, spoke to journalists after leading fire officers to douse the inferno. The room where the fire started from, uh, I've been allocated to, I don't know the head mass or other thing, which is using as his residence. So the fire started from his room, and the fire was aided by the explosion of uh, the gas cylinder. When the fire started, you know, they, saw it, they tried to break into the uh, room and extinguish it, but they couldn't break it uh, you know, into that room. So the, when the, uh, you know, the, uh, the gas cylinder exploded, you know, they all ran away. So when we get here, you know, uh, we realize that the fire is involved already in this room. So what we need to do is to prevent the fire from extending to other rooms. So after we have done that, then we started tackling the fire. And now the fire is, has been extinguished. There is no casualty. No casualty. They all managed to... Uh, run away when the gas cylinder exploded. And I hope total, the, the block is uh, total, total uh, 18 classrooms and we managed to save 12. You heard the Incaria District Fire Officer, Divisional Officer Grade 3, James Akowa. Now, the Ministry of Education has denied claims it's misapplied over 19 million Ghana cities from the Free Senior High School account. This comes after the Auditor General's report for the 2019-2020 to financial year indicated that the Ministry of Education had misused the money to fund activities for the Ghana Education Service and the National Council for Curriculum and Assessment. In a statement released by the Ministry of Education, it indicated that the money had been paid back into the free SHS account. Here are excerpts of the statement read by my colleague Anshali Zhu. In 2019, the then Minister for Education approved the said amount to be borrowed from the free SHS account to support urgent activities of the National Council for Curriculum and Assessment, NACA, and the Ghana Education Service. These activities were to be funded by the Ghana Accountability and Learning Outcome Project, GALOP, a basic education reform project funded by the World Bank. Gallup at the time had not released their funds to NACA and GES to implement the time-bound activities. NACA and GES have since paid up the borrowed amount into the free SHS account. Full payment was made on 31st December 2020. The Education Ministry is by this statement emphasizing that there has not been any such misappropriation of funds as has been peddled around. Those were excerpts of a statement from the Ministry of Education and read by Anne Shelley Zou. Now the Social Security and National Insurance Trust, SNIT, has denied claims by a retired teacher in the Nanumba North Municipality of the Northern Region that he has not been able to access his pension benefits seven years after retirement. Clarifying the issue in a statement copied to City News, SNIT explained that the retiree, Napari Manga, qualified and opted for a reduced pension in, in November 2018 because he did not retire at age 60. The trust has also shown documentary evidence of payments made to the pensioner to City News. Here are excerpts of the statement. According to SNED, Napari Manga applied for his benefits on November 28, 2018 and his first pension 
together with his past credit, were computed and paid to him on 5th December 2018, a week after his application. Snit also stated that he has subsequently been receiving his monthly pension, contrary to his claims to City News that he does not earn his benefits. Snit also mentioned that Mr. Mange's past credit was recomputed and the difference was paid to him on May 31, 2020. It explained that the difference was as a result of the change in the formula used for the computation of past credit. The past credit formed part of the lump sum that is paid to workers who retire under the National Pensions Act 2008, Act 766, but had contributed to the SNIT scheme as of 31st December 2009. SNIT also reminded the pensioner in question that it is no more responsible for paying lump sums and therefore urged Mr. Manga to contact his second-tier fund managers for his lump sum if he has not already done so. The trust further assured that it remains committed to paying the right benefits promptly to all members who are due. It said any member who has issues relating to their pension may contact the trust for resolution. Those were excerpts of a statement by the Social Security and National Insurance Trust, SNIT, read by Ebenezer Afenyadatsi. Members of the Concerned Small Scale Miners Association have welcomed government's decision permitting them to return to their operations. A Deputy Lands and Natural Resources Minister, George Mrikuduka, yesterday announced that small-scale miners with requisite documentation could return to work. President of the Consent Small-Scale Miners Association, Kojo Prepa, said, though the news is welcoming, they expect the government to come to their aid as their equipment were destroyed by the Operation Halt team. The welcoming news, but we welcome this news with a misreaction. So as we speak now, uh, we have a lot of burnt excavators that happened during uh, the era of Operation Hall. And then, you know, in mining, uh, we use excavators uh, to work. So then, now that he has said that we have left uh, the ban on small-scale mining, we are only asking the minister, which excavators are we going to use uh, to work with? So, you know, it's a good news, but just that a lot of our members have lost their since uh, during the inauguration of uh, Operation Hall. I've been in the house for almost four months now. And then, uh, you know, our job is capital intensive. Basically, a lot of our people don't even have the, the, the capital to start all over again. So we're only pleading with government to at least come to our aid and then help us. And as a matter of fact, what our president said that they were going to burn, uh, they are going to burn the excavators. And for that matter, if we don't agree with them, we can go to court. Every money to go to court to, to, to seek justice is a problem. So we are only pleading with the government that uh, he would as well, you know, bring something that can ease this burden that he has caused our members. Happens to the bench excavated. You know, they gave us a license when we brought these machines uh, from outside. We paid duties, and a lot of these machines were not even bent at sight. They were bent in our in various communities or in various houses. And now that they want us to go back and work, are we going to work with our bare hands or with our bare foot? At least uh, they should also speak to the fact that the burning of excavators was not needful. And for that matter, at least government should do something either by replacing our bent excavators or uh, speak something to us. You heard there the president of the Concerned Small Scale Miners Association, Kojo Pripra.
Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Let your voice be heard on Eyewitness News on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash city97.3, Twitter at twitter.com forward slash city973, and Instagram at instagram.com forward slash city973 with the hashtag Eyewitness News. You welcome back to Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTFM broadcasting from Adabraka in Accra. COVID-19 has been here since uh, last year, uh, changed a lot of things and the order of our behavior. Now, the economic hardship cannot be underestimated. The government uh, decided to help. The president announced a free water package. There was also a free electricity uh, package at a point. Now, more than a year after the rollout of the free water program, the coalition of NGOs in water and sanitation, CONIWAS, uh, decided to carry out a study in how the free water distribution went. Today, it called a press conference and said that the distribution was not satisfactory. Let's speak to the chairman of the coalition of NGOs in water and sanitation, CONIWAS, Yao Ata. Ahin. Sir, you're welcome to Eyewitness News. Um, explain to us the motive of this uh, research you did. Yes, thank you very much, Sander. Um, under our right to water, sanitation, and hygiene services and basic project, which is within the framework of the Nations Human Rights Council, uh, the coalition decided to conduct an assessment of the free water initiative announced by government in three randomly selected communities, which is within Greater Accra and not far away from the Accra metropolitan area. So we selected Jama, Gonse, and Olebu to ascertain the extent to which the directives were being implemented and the modalities that have been laid down. The lessons that were to be drawn from the assessment and the recommendations were deemed to be relevant for the work sector, for government, and for other stakeholders for purposes of future programming. And so we decided to do this and to share the findings with the Ghanaian public. And if you permit me, the findings were that these communities that we selected randomly, had low and varied access. I mean, what we mean by low and varied access is that in most cases, it was difficult for these communities to benefit from the free water initiative. First of all, because the pipelines did not reach these communities. And where the pipelines even reached, the elevated nature of the settlement made it very difficult for water to flow regularly. And therefore, these communities had to resort to tanker services, commercial tanker services. The difficulty was that even the nature of the roads made it very difficult for tanker services deployed by Ghana Water Company to serve these communities, even though they already had erected, I mean, polytanks in these communities. So we are recommending that in future, I mean, interventions, it will be very important for government to engage, 
I mean broadly, so that together we can sit down and agree on the modalities, the approaches, and be able to better deliver, I mean, safe water to the Ghanaian public. I see. Now, these communities that you say were not uh, reached but had the services of tankers, recall the Ghana Water Company, aside the free water that it was supplying through the pipes, also said there were going to be tanker services. I followed the Ghana Police Service tankers uh, from the depot at Tesano to some communities in the Ganwes municipality where they supplied their or filled their, their boreholes and reservoirs with water for the communities to, to fetch. Do you not know whether or not these areas you saw tanker services provided possibly could have been paid by the state regardless of the fact that it was tanker service? Yes, precisely the case. I mean, it looks to us I mean, that the arrangement that Ghana Water Company put in place was quite extensive, quite comprehensive, to the extent that they deployed 630,000 liter polytanks and they deployed several tanker, I mean, services to supply these communities, including the three we are talking about. Unfortunately, for issues of terrain, the roads, and the difficulty in getting these tanker services to serve these communities, it appears that they had to rely heavily on commercial I mean, tanker services. And they were paying huge sums. I mean, if you compare what they were paying to what the Ghana Water Company, I mean, even pipelines, what they were paying for this pipeline serviced by the Ghana Water Company. You realize that these communities were paying, I mean, extremely high I mean, rates for the water that they were getting access to. But let me take this opportunity to thank government, commend government highly for the thoughtfulness and the good effort that they put in place. The Minister for Sanitation and Water Resources, for example, showed a lot of leadership and hard work in coordinating to ensure that they develop guidelines for the delivery of the water. But I think that the highest commendation will go to the Ghana Water Company Limited, not because all the communities have access to water, but because of the responsiveness and the proactiveness they showed, the speed with which they responded to the findings of this assessment and the manner in which they deployed people to go and do an assessment and put in place measures to ensure that going forward these communities were also served. I think that they've been very, very, very responsive. I want to commend them for that. That is what we want to see from duty bearers and people entrusted with the care of providing social services to people. Then the Community Water and Sanitation Agency also were effective in developing the guidelines for MMDAs, for NGOs, and for social enterprises and water and sanitation management teams. However, what we are saying is that in spite of these commendable efforts, it was simply not possible to reach everybody everywhere with access to save water. And we are particularly concerned about the poor and the vulnerable, particularly in rural and small towns. These were people who benefited the least that they did not benefit, I mean, as much as we would have expected. So going forward, we want to employ government that when such initiatives are introduced, 
let us do some targeting. Let us broadly consult so that the poor and the vulnerable can also benefit as much as we expect them to. Before you go, since this was water supplied by tankers and they were private operators, um, do you know whether the quality that was delivered to the people was of the standard that is required? Because that clearly will also be a problem. I mean, definitely, definitely. I mean, we are spot on. The quality of water has always been an issue. I mean, once we are supplied by Ghana Water Company, you can be sure that the quality will be good. However, from the searching point to the transportation to the delivery of the water to the communities, anything can happen. But it was not something that we really dedicated attention to. Maybe possibly going forward, we can decide to launch or commission another study on the quality of water delivered by tanker services to communities. Very well. Thank you so much and I uh, wish you all the best. Uh, that's, uh, Thank you, Sandra. The chairman of the Coalition of NGOs in Water and Sanitation, KONIWAS, as it is called, um, they have constituted a study in the government's free water and uh, they say that it has not been satisfactory. This is Eyewitness News on 97.3 City FM. Of course, I'll give us some other stories that we have from the City Newsroom. Parliament of the Economic Community of West African States will soon come up with regulations to harmonize the telecommunications sector across the sub-region. This will follow a joint meeting of three committees of the Parliament scheduled to take place in Ifutu from Tuesday, July 27 to Thursday, July 29. A major issue to be considered will be the varying cost of roaming data and airtime across the sub-region. Here, spokesperson of Ghana's delegation to the ECOWAS Parliament, Mahama Ayarika, on the theme of the meeting. So the meeting is to bring in experts to apprise members of the committee so that we can uh, see where reforms need to take place at the sub-regional level. And then we can make recommendations to the parliament for consideration. As you will know, the parliament can propose legislation, sub-regional legislation. And we are moving to that stage where we are looking at how can we develop regulations that will apply across the, the sub-region. For instance, there's a vexed question of roaming. If you travel across the country, I mean across the, the countries, and you have a phone from, from Ghana, uh, MTN line, I mean, if you get into Benin, into Nigeria, why should you be, trans, trans, you know, be paying higher? Those are issues that we, we need to... To, to discuss if, if you are using internet in Ghana, in Nigeria, in Togo, and all those places, why should the rates of, of, of data uh, be markedly different in terms of pricing across the, the sub-region? As you know, the whole idea of ECOWAS is how to promote integration. And so we must make sure that the roads, the, the borders, and, and things like telecommunication infrastructure uh, integrated in such a way that it makes it easy for us to really have the human beings integrate better. That was spokesperson for Ghana's delegation to the Okowaz Parliament, Mahama Ayariga. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Get the details. Every significant financial transaction, every market movement, and all the policies that affect your business. City Business News. Be informed. 
Time now for City Business News on Eyewitness News brought to you by Vodafone and powered by citybusinessnews.com. My name is Ellen Dapa. Let's settle for the details. Insurance companies that are unable to meet the new minimum capital requirement set by the National Insurance Commission by the end of this year will not be allowed to operate in the country. That's according to the Commissioner of Insurance, Dr. Justice Ofori. The minimum capital requirement for life and non-life companies was increased from 15 million Ghana cities to 50 million Ghana cities and all insurance companies were required to recapitalize by June 2021. This deadline has since been extended to 1st January 2022 as a result of the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on businesses. With about five months to the end of the year, Dr. Fori urged companies to do their best to meet the minimum capital requirement. Yeah, the, the, the implementation of the minimum capital requirement, which is 31st, deadline is 31st of this December of this year, is still on course and uh, we're still encouraging insurance companies to do all they can to meet the minimum capital requirements. Most of them have brought in their strategic, I mean, their work plan on how they are going to actually achieve the, uh, the 50 million cities uh, requirements. So it's in progress and uh, by the end of the third quarter, we would actually have a clear f- figure of those companies who might be able to make it. What I'll say, yeah, what I'll say is that most of them are doing all what they can to improve their minimum capital requirements. So yeah, there, 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 there are definitely some who face challenges, but majority of them are doing what, whatever they can to actually meet the minimum capital requirement. And for those who are unable to meet it, what will happen to them? Then we'll deal with it as, when we get there. If, because after 31st December, if you don't meet the minimum requirement, it means that you cannot operate. Commit, Commissioner of Insurance, Dr. Justice Ofori speaking there. Now, the scarcity of poultry feed in the country is forcing some poultry farmers to sell their birds off to foreign countries in order to prevent the birds from dying. For several weeks now, Ghanaian poultry farmers have lamented the lack of maize and feed for poultry for production, which in turn is crippling the industry. Now, interacting with the General Secretary of the Poultry Farmers Association in the Bono region, Mordecai Amanfo, on the City Breakfast Show this morning, stated that the poultry farmers in the region had to desperately sell off their birds at cheaper prices to wholesale buyers from Côte d'Ivoire. Mr. Manfold explained that this was due to the inability of Ghanaian buyers to buy a lot of the birds because of the lack of storage facilities for the birds. Since we spoke about this, it has been about four months, five months, and for me, I'm not seeing anything. All I can see is birds are being sold day in, day out. You can tell your reporter here, just to go and stand, there's a place called Fiapre in Sunyani here, and then count the number of cars that are coming from Côte d'Ivoire to be buying birds in our country. And the other people who are saving us, you were asking, are we slaughtering our birds to be put in a fridge? Which fridge? There's no fridge in Ghana here that buys our, 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 our product. If he hadn't been Côte d'Ivoire, would have been dead by now. Our business would have been collapsed. We wouldn't have even known where to sell these beds that are not supposed to be, be sold. We wouldn't have known what to do with them. But thankfully, it's them who comes to buy these things from us at a very cheap price, and farmers don't have any options than to do that. Mordecai Manfall is the General Secretary of the Poultry Farmers Association in the Bono region. Moving on, 
The Secretary General of the African Continental Free Trade Area, Wamkelemene, says Africa has been offered yet another amazing opportunity to industrialize despite several failed efforts in the past. According to Mr. Mene, the only sure way to the true independence of the African continent is through her economic liberation, which should lead to the creation of jobs for the continent's youthful population. There is more in the following report. According to the International Monetary Fund, IMF, 10 to 12 million Africans are joining the labor market on a yearly basis, while the continent is only able to generate 3.5 million jobs in a year. By the year 2035, Africa is projected to produce more workforce than the entire world put together. Meanwhile, 60% of all of Africa's existing youthful population remains jobless, according to the IMF. After General Secretary Wamkele Kiabetu Mene says African leaders would have to awaken now more than ever to the need to industrialize the continent. Africa's industrialization policies rest on manufacturing due to its multiplier effect on other sectors of the economy. Manufacturing is the engine of growth that enhances higher levels of productivity and greater techni te te technical change thus creating more jobs with higher wages for both women and young people. However, industrialization in 21st century Africa calls for innovative strategies that go beyond sectoral approaches that target only manufacturing. Africa can industrialize by promoting all economic sectors that have the potential for high growth and employment creation including digital industrialization. Secretary General of the African Continental Free Trade Area, Wamkele Mene, ending that report by Benjamin Aklama. Now to our last story, a former technical advisor at the Finance Ministry, Dr. Sam Mensah, is pushing for a national debt reduction plan to deal with Ghana's rising public debt stock. According to him, the government needs to outline in-depth strategies put in place to salvage the country's debt situation in the upcoming media budget review. This report has more details. Data released from the Bank of Ghana indicates that Ghana's total public debt stock reached an all-time high of 304.6 billion cities as of the end of March 2021. The debt stock, which ended 2020 at 291.6 billion CDs, saw about 13 billion Ghana CDs being added in the first quarter of 2021. The figure now leaves Ghana's debt-to-GDP ratio to 70.2% as of the end of March this year. The consistent rise continues to be of huge concern to Ghanaians, with many stakeholders proposing for Ghana to completely halt borrowings to check this. Speaking to City Business News after the launch of his book, Inside Out, which details his 10-year engagement with the finance ministry, finance expert and former technical advisor to the sector ministry, Dr. Sam Mensah, suggested the need for a national deficit strategy which would bring all political divides on board to help salvage the country's debt situation. We are in a debt situation that economists would call a structural situation. Structural in the sense that it's built into our budget system. We are spending a lot more than we have resources for, so there's always a deficit that has to be financed by borrowing money. And we're not going to be able to solve that problem easily until we get a national consensus. Until we get to the point where the two partisan sides are on the same wavelength, 
and can mobilize the people they are supported behind a national deficit strategy is going to be very difficult because of the politics. Dr. Mensah further noted that ahead of the mid-year budget review, he expects the finance minister to announce strategies that have been put in place to reduce the country's debt stock in the months ahead. The government should hold on very tight to its deficit reduction plan and try to contain expenses. So that, that's what I expect the government to be able to tell us, that they are on track in terms of their deficit and debt management strategies. Former technical advisor at the Finance Ministry, Dr. Samensa, ending that report. And that will be all for City Business News on Eyewitness News. It was sponsored by Vodafone, Together We Can, and powered by your most comprehensive website, citybusinessnews.com. My name is Ellen Dapa. Up next is Points Black. Touch this. Let your voice be heard on Eyewitness News on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash city97.3, Twitter at twitter.com forward slash city973, and Instagram at instagram.com forward slash city973 with the hashtag Eyewitness News.
It's 23 minutes to 1900 GMT. This is Prime Blank on Eyewitness News. I am Umaru Sanda Amadou. Tonight on Prime Blank, the Commander Sugar Factory. Very controversial political, politically. Today, the Minister for Trade and Industry, Alan Kwajo Chemantin, was before the House of Parliament. And he said the roadmap for the operationalization of the Commander Sugar Factory will be finalized in August this year. That will be next month. Now, the concerned citizens of Commander Traditional Area, if you recall, raised questions about the facility being left to rot since its commissioning in 2016. A situation they say has deprived the youth of job opportunities. They called on government to institute measures towards the operationalization of the Commander Sugar Factory in the central region. Answering questions on the floor today, the minister said the strategic investor for the project, Park Agrotech, is set to take over the operations of the factory. Let's listen to him. Mr. Speaker, as represented to this august house during my ministerial vetting in February this year, the Ministry of Trade and Industry, working in collaboration with its transaction advisor, PricewaterhouseCoopers Ghana Limited, is in the process of concluding the conditions precedent for the activation of the concession agreement with a selected strategic partner, Park Agrotech Limited, to commence operations at the Commander Sugar Factory. Mr. Speaker, as previously indicated, Park Agrotech Limited is an agro-processing company based in Ghana, who together with its technical partner based in India, have significant expertise in the sugar cultivation and processing industry. Mr. Speaker, in my ministerial vetting, I also referred to various incentives that Park Agrotech, the strategic investor, was requesting as part of the proposed concession agreement. Working with the transaction advisors, the Ministry has painstakingly worked through these various requirements and requests from the strategic partner. And as part of these arrangements, Park Agrotech has applied for and has been granted 1D1F status by the Ministry. This will enable Park Agrotech to take advantage of the incentives and benefits as approved by Parliament for 1D1F registered companies and therefore to commence operation of the Commander Sugar Factory expeditiously. Mr. Speaker, I have instructed the Transaction Advisor and Park Agrotech to ensure that the conditions precedent to the concession agreement and their roadmap for the opening of the factory is finalized by the end of August this year to enable operational activities as the factory commence before the end of the year. So that's the Minister for Trade and Industry, Alan Kwejo Chamanti. Let's speak to the people who raise issue with the non-operationalization of the factory. Samuel Awuja is convener for concerned citizens of Commenda Traditional Area. Samuel, you're welcome to Eyewitness News. You raised uh, issue with the the factory that is sitting there 
idle. Now, the minister says there is a plan, and that plan, uh, that roadmap would be, you know, operationalized from August. You heard him there. What will be your comments? Um, thank you, Omar. Good listening. Um, we've heard this before. If if I am to take you back, um, as far back as 2019, November 26th, when the government heard that the citizens of community area were preparing to embark on a peaceful demonstration, um, they quickly organized themselves and then came out to announce that there was going to be a strategic investor to take over the operations of the factory. So this is this is not new. We we we've heard this before. So um, we still don't believe on um, everything comes to. What will make you believe? The only thing that makes us believe is when the factory is actually working. Because as as I speak to you just this morning, um, the chief and elders of community tradition area had a meeting with the central regional minister in their office. And we were in the meeting when the minister tried to get in touch with the trade minister to at least have a conference with that. But we understand that he was in Paris. So for them to have quickly mobilized and gone to Parliament to answer a question which was posed by uh, the MP for KEA, Honorable Samuel Atamos, uh, the same thing happened in 2019. So for us, we, we don't believe the mayor is coming from them. We don't believe it. So until the factory really works, because as, as we indicated earlier on, the factory is rusting. And if you go there now, the only people who are there are ones appointed by the trade ministry to win the place. They are only doing this because we, we plan on going on the demonstration. So it's also another need for you to stop the planned demonstration. What is the true state of the factory? Give us a picture. Now, if, if, you, if you happen to be around, the, the, the whole factory is rusted. I'll send you a picture. The, the outer part of the whole factory, you could just picture the whole thing like uh, a factory that is built along the coastal line. I mean, that is sitting completely. So, if the factory has been closed down for five years, Two months, five years, and two months without any maintenance, you cannot even see the silver tower of the outer part of the building again. The whole thing has turned to brown, and some are even torn off and they are worn away. So I would say that the outer part of the factory is rusting away. It's, it's, it's very dilapidated, and the place too is windy. It's only now that they are trying to play the bushes around. But as I, I, I tell you now, it's not good at all. So, is it the case that there's no activity at all in the in the area? No, there's never been any activity for five good years. In fact, there's no light even there. We don't even have light there. So the place is even prone. W- were we not told at a point that it had even produced sugar that was on the market? How is it that you are saying to us there's no electricity? As in, there are no electric poles connecting power from the main grid uh, uh, national grid to that area is that what you're suggesting that in the night if i went there now it would be total blackout yes it would be total blackout the the, the whole place has been connected to the grid but uh we don't know some reasons all the lights are not working there's only one security man at the place uh he's been there for five years but um there's no light there 
yes produce sugar we can't remember uh, it, it, during the test run in 2016 it produced sugar they did a test run for six months and then they closed down for maintenance but uh, they produce sugar and uh, right after that i remember 30th may 2016 uh it, it was closed down right after production of the sugar during the test run it was closed down and uh from what we are hearing they are not able to even pay the the electricity bills connecting to the, giving the light to the place so the whole place has been in darkness for years for five good years interesting now what about the outgrowers who uh, were used to providing sugarcane to feed this factory what happens to their business thank you um there are two thousand outgrowers in fact we the citizens have been in constant engagement with them the initially the government engaged them to use their farm to cultivate the sugarcane they did some reserved um plots of land to cultivate the sugarcane so they were just waiting for the nursery the sugarcane nursery from the government uh we were thinking as citizens that uh, when the new government assumed power they were going to give the nursery which was in place about 126 hectares of nursery sugarcane nursery to the farmers so that the business will continue this didn't happen and it takes only six months for the sugar canes to be fully grown so when it was passed due the ministry sold the sugar cane to the stillers around the apetite the stillers around and so just recently as about 2018 there about people were there with their trucks care trucks buying the sugar overgrown sugar canes to go and distill for apetite so this is what really happened but it's still strange that a huge factory like that uh, you're saying to us that nothing at all um, is happening so are there vehicles that were originally supposed to be used by the factory are these vehicles there what does the district assembly say or do about the factory thank you if you go there now you won't see any vehicle there there's never been any vehicle and uh, like also it's quite surprising that you don't even have light to the place for five good years now we tried engaging the uh, the assembly um so we got in contact with the municipal chief executive here honorable nana pia Kran. when we wanted to go on demonstration he came to us and then said that it would be better for us to have an open forum so we agreed and then we planned towards the open forum he was to even sponsor the whole program but in the latter part when it was about a day to the open forum he backed out of the whole thing without giving any reason so we decided to continue with the demonstration till the regional minister also stepped in intervened and then called us only for the same open forum to be bought because the regional minister sent a letter to us indicating that she had a i think a cabinet retreat at pedias lodge so uh, she couldn't attend the open forum that is why even the chiefs and the elders moved from commander to see the regional minister today uh we've done we've had series of engagement with the ministry of trade uh, we've been there about five times. We've sent petitions. There's been so many. So we tried, and it seems the government only listened to them, uh, uh, the pleas of the people through demonstrations. So maybe that's what is pushing them now. Would you say the factory was unnecessary in the first place, or you think that it was necessary, but the management has been poor? It was necessary. And I wouldn't also say that the management has been poor uh i will say that it it's you know the government has the world to personalize the factory that's what we see because 
no matter the state of the factory, no matter the state that maybe another government came to meet it, we expected that uh, it will be continued because like the government is um, trying to build a lot of factories under the one district, uh, one factory scheme. We, we are in fact happy and we we're even thinking that uh, for us, we already have a sugar factory, so we'll be left with a, uh, just operationalize it for us, but we've not seen that for five good years. So the factory is, because if it's operational now, it's going to employ 5,000 direct people, and then the indirect is going to be 2,300. So in all, it's going to give jobs to 7,300 people. So I wouldn't say that it's necessary. It's only uh, lacking the will from the government to operationalize the factory. Thank you for speaking to us, and I'm sure we'll be looking forward to August to see what happens. And we'll be back to ask you if anything else is happening. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you, Amara. That's Samuel Awuja. He's convener of the consent or for the consent citizens of Commenda traditional area. And this conversation we are having is because the Minister for Trade and Industry, Alan Shemantin, was in Parliament to give an update on the Commenda Sugar Factory. And he says the roadmap for the operationalization will be finalized in August this year. Suleimana Yusuf is a member of Parliament for Bole and deputy ranking member on the Trade and Industry as well as Tourism Committee of Parliament. Honorable, you're welcome to Point Blank on Eyewitness News. Your colleague asked a question. The minister came to answer. That colleague is on your side, as in the NDC side. As someone who has been working on the Trade Committee, what do you make of the answers he's giving you? The community member just said to me he doesn't trust the, the words because he's heard them before. What would you say? Are you Omar? Uh, Sanda, let me first of all say Bakr Sala, belated one, of course, and to also say good evening to our cherished uh, listeners. Indeed, after the Sala, I was a very happy man until this afternoon when the Minister of Trade came to Parliament to answer a question that was filed and asked by the MP for Commander Edinam uh, Honorable Atamil. I became so sad because of the answer that the minister gave. And so, to answer your question, I am not, very, I'm not happy. Uh, it's one of those deceits that we've had today. Let me take you back to 2019. The minister was called to come to parliament and to answer a question on the same subject matter. And the answer was that in 12 months' time, the factory will be operationalized. Thereafter, he runs to Commander with what they describe as a strategic investor. And they even introduced him to the people and gave him gave the people the assurance that sooner or later they were coming to operationalize the factory. Today we have been told that if now they are putting in place plans. Very sad. What is the background? The NDC government took a loan from the Asian Bank of India. And also took facility from Asian Bank of Ghana, then Edis, to put up this uh, factory and also to also put up some nursery in order that they are able to get raw material. Hello? I'm listening to you. Hello? I'm, li I'm with you. Yeah, it, it, I'm with you. In order that they are able to get raw material to feed the factory. Then the NDC lost power. One would have thought that the MPP will continue with such a very important strategic factory. It is very important because if you want to look at some of the big tickets items that we import into this country, 
you're talking about rice, you're talking about poultry, and you're talking about sugar. So it was strategic in order that we are able to reduce the importation of sugar. It was strategic because we're going to create jobs for over 7,000 people. Now you came in, and the first approach was that you wanted to audit the whole process. And so the Minister of Trade commissioned an audit firm to do an audit of the factory. I have a copy of the report that was given to the minister. And in there, they had recommended what the minister should do in order that they continue with the project. One of the issues, I mean, none of the recommendations was to say that, oh, stop it there and get a strategic investor. No. The itemized the challenges that the company at that level, at that stage, was uh, facing, and now if the ministry, and for that matter, the minister, was able to do A, B, C, D, the company will be operationalized and jobs will be created and we will reduce the importation of sugar. The minister, and for that matter, the government decided to sell that report and said they were going for a strategic investor. Indeed, how the strategic investor was even selected is another problem. But because we thought that there's a need for that uh, factory to kickstart, we're quiet on that. He went to introduce the uh, investor to the people. We assured them and that they were going to start the process at uh, the factory very, very soon. Four, five years down the line, we have been told that if now they're going to put in play plans to personalize it. Very sad. But at least there is an intent and there's a roadmap. Um, perhaps you should be taking some of the blame. The indigenous just said to us, or the resident just said to us, that even the electricity supply has been cut to the plant and that it is weedy and rusting. Maybe you also didn't leave behind a good roadmap or a good plan to the operationalization of the plant and that it could be the reason that the minister is doing what he's doing now, as in doing what you feel to do in your Omar, uh, last Omar, administration. If you listen to me very well, uh, you wouldn't have even asked me this question. They inherited a factory and they decided to do an audit. The audit came out with some recommendations. Okay? Of course, the factory hadn't started in full scale. And we admit, we on the NDC side admit that there were challenges. This is a factory that was just done by somebody and it's a, a tanky project. So the person had handed over to us, we tested, we test, did a test run, and there were problems. Even before we left, we identified some uh, minor, minor problems. Now you came in, did an audit, and the audit revealed same problems. What he needed to do was to fill these problems and move on. Then he decided to allow the factory to rot. So you are able to sell it at a knockdown price to a crony. And even that, that person is unable to kickstart the process so that we are able to process sugar. So I don't think that the minority and the NDC should be blamed. We should rather be commanded. The whole factory which was built by Nkoma was totally down. The okay. NDC government, Abodam Mata, John Draman Mahama, raised it up. They could have continued from where we landed. But they decided to allow it to rot. The factory reasons, we don't know. is rotting now, as we have been told. Yeah. And if what the minister said in the past or what the government said is in the past anything to go by we may not see anything happening after august there's a potential financial loss there but is it a financial loss to the state or this would be to a private individual and who should be made to pay for that loss 
I started by saying that we took a loan from the India Asian Bank. And I'm talking about the government of Ghana taking that loan. So if that loan is not paid, it sits on the books of the government. And so the government won't incur a debt. But somebody should be answering, somebody should be held responsible for this negligence. And who does, and that person, who, who does someone be? And that person is the minister responsible for the trade ministry. Okay? Because for me, even paying money to an auditor to go and do a job, and bring recommendations to you, and then you sell that report in itself is causing laws, a financial laws to the state. If you knew, you wouldn't use the outcome of the recommendations. Why do you pay the taxpayers' money to such a, a firm? To start with. And then you also allow, they told us, because they are said in the report that because the factory was left unattended to for some number of years, its value had reduced. And that if nothing was done, continuously, at the rate at which it was reducing, it will become a nothing for us to even talk of selling. Okay. The minister and this was in the report. And he didn't do anything about it. The, minis the minister has given answers and made a promise. Is that where it ends? Or you can haul him back and ask him questions even before we get to August? I think he's come to Parliament to answer questions on this issue more than four times. I am recommending, and today I just met my ranking member, I'm recommending that the committee on our side should sit down and get a very strong uh, strategy to look at this issue. Maybe. Because for me, come and give us answers and go, come back again and give us answers will not help us. Very well. We need to sit down and then find a way of ensuring that the minister, and for that matter, the government, do something about the uh, Commander Sugar Factory. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for your time, Honorable, and wish you all the best. I'm grateful, my brother. Suleiman Yusuf, Honorable Deputy Ranking Member, Trade and Industry, as well as Tourism Committee of Parliament. He's also the NDCMP for Bole Bamboy. That would be it for Eyewitness News tonight and indeed for the week. My name is Umaru Sanda. I'm a production by Sixtus Dongulo, Beverly London. And Zoe Abubedu Ado. The technical support came through from Desmond Yako. We'll be back on Monday at 17.30 GMT. Bye-bye. City News. We speak first. Reach our hotline on 0302-976-732. And get interactive on Facebook, City 97.3 FM. And Twitter at City.